Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Hal, very grateful alcoholic. Hi, Hal. And I see two or three people here who know that I try to live an attitude of gratitude because I got so much to be grateful for. And my gratitude cup runneth over this summer. Some of us were privileged to be in Montreal. I was privileged to be there. And I remember that fantastic opening meeting, the flag ceremony, after which we held hands and sang Happy Birthday AA. 55,000 people holding hands singing Happy Birthday AA. And I don't, don't normally cry in public, but I got carried away. Tears starting. I was a little embarrassed. I looked at Conway on my right and Charlotte on my left, and they were both crying too, so I felt a little better after that. I think there were about 55,000 people that were crying. Tears of gratitude, tears of joy, not tears of sadness. Tears of gratitude, and it was fantastic. Then on top of this, we come down here to the IDAA, and again, my gratitude cup runneth over. These are fantastic meetings, and I was amazed last night at those 90, whatever they were, up there for the first time. I sort of keep mental track, and about 98% thank God for their sobriety and express their gratitude. And I hear people saying they're grateful to God, they're, thank, they're here by the grace of God, and they're grateful. To me, that's two big pluses. So I had a lot of pluses last night, and I hear people talk like that. I'm sure they'll be back. Our topic this morning is the big book, the importance of the big book. This is the most important book in my life because it saved my life. Now, there's nothing new in this book, nothing new. It all comes out of the New Testament of the other big book. And I read the other big book, but I didn't seem to quite communicate the way this big book communicates. So this is indeed a very important part of my life because it saved my life. Now, I'm not an expert on the big book. I go to a big book study group every week. And I'm sure there are people in this room who know as much or more about the big book than I do. All I'm going to do is to go through this at odd intervals and quote from the book, verbatim quotes on significant sentences, signal sentences, I call them, that have meant so much to my sobriety. So this is not a review or a critique or a report on the big book. I'm just going to quote various sentences, signal sentences of this book that have been important in my life. First of all, as most of you know, this was written by Bill Wilson in 1938 and 39. Now think for a minute. Bill's last drink was December 11th, 1934. So 35, 36, 37, 38. He had less than four years sobriety when he wrote the big book. And he had a little help, but he wrote most of it. And it was reviewed and critiqued by the Akron group and the Cleveland group and the New York group, but it was not a 9% bill, according to the reports. At any rate, here was Bill Wilson, no formal education in medicine or science, nor writer. He'd never had any experience in writing, never an editor of the school paper or anything like that. 
here he was writing this big book, the first 164 pages that have been reprinted over the intervening 50 years, not 50 years, since either originally printed in 1938-39 when he wrote them. Now, let, remember, less than four years sobriety with no background in any of these fields, and he wrote these fantastic words and put them all together that made sense. And the first 164 pages have been reprinted verbatim, the second edition and the third edition. I don't know about you, but uh, it amazed me that a man with that little sobriety did this job. To me, the only explanation was divinely inspired. Look around your home group and look at somebody with less than four years sobriety and imagine him or her writing this big book. As Clancy says, he doesn't let anybody bring him coffee till they've had five years. <laughs> but Bill wrote it with less than four years sobriety. Fantastic. We'll start here at the beginning. Now, you hear a lot of people come to this podium and say they're recovering alcoholics. You hear other people say they're recovered alcoholic. So for years I wonder, what, what, why is this? And my sponsor said, look in the book, look in the book. That was his answer to most of my questions. Look in the book, look in the book. Because the answers are here, ladies and gentlemen. I heard Chuck C., God bless his soul, in my second year of sobriety, tell me and about a thousand other people that were listening to him that everything I needed to know to solve any problem as long as I live. Not booze problem, any problem, living problem as long as I live. Everything I need to know is contained in the first 164 pages of the big book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I found that to be true. I didn't believe him then, but I believe today. So, as my sponsor said, look in the book. That's the answer. So the answer to that query about Am I recovered or am I recovering? The big book says I'm recovered here on the opening page. The story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. And on the preface, excuse me, the foreword they call it. This is the foreword to the first edition, which has been reprinted verbatim, the second edition and the third edition. The foreword says, quote, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered, that's in italics, to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. So the question is, what is this precise method in which we recovered? What is it? And I look for the expression somewhere, stop drinking, go to meetings. We hear it all the time. Don't drink and go to meetings. Well, it isn't in the book. Nowhere in this book does it say stop drinking and go to meetings. It's not there. So the query is, what is this precise manner in which we recovered? Well, over the years... In my big book study group, I found the precise way which we recovered. And that's what this 164 pages explains. We recovered through spiritual growth. Spiritual growth by trying to practice these principles in all our affairs. That's how we recovered. It's that simple. Through spiritual growth enunciated in the 12th step as explained in the first 164 pages. 
Now, alcoholics have a way of twisting things around for their own benefit, rationalization. So Bill was aware of this, and to make sure that we don't confuse recovered and cured, over on page 85, we'll, we'll go there a little later, he makes a statement, we are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. So that tells me I'm never cured of alcoholism. I am recovered. I'm recovered a day at a time as long as I maintain my spiritual condition. That's my problem. I haven't had a problem with booze in years. No booze problem. My problem is maintaining my spiritual condition. And I find as long as I stick close to this program, stick close to the winners, and we've got a bunch of them here on the front row, and try to live this attitude of gratitude. I am able so far up to date to maintain this spiritual condition. So that takes care of the recovered versus recovering uh, item that faces many of us. And there's nothing wrong. If you want to say recovering, that's great too. But I say recovered because that's what the book says, and I get my A out of the book. As I said, the first edition published in uh, April 1939, it took 35 years, 1975 years later, for one million edition, uh, one millionth copy to roll off the press. And that was in 1974, and Dr. Jack Norris, the non-alcoholic chairman of the board of Alcoholics Anonymous, presented the one millionth copy of the big book to President Richard Milhouse Nixon in the Oval Office of the White House. This was in the spring of 74. You political historical buffs will remember that was a year of some uh, consternation in the city of Washington. Now, A does not engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes, so we're not going to any political controversy. However, there are many people who think that had President Nixon read that book that Dr. <laughs> didn't even need to read the whole book. <laughs> Had he read the page that explained step 10, continued to take personal inventory, and when he was wrong, promptly admitted. If he'd read that one phrase, gone on TV, admitted he was wrong, we think the history of the President of the United States would be different. However, he didn't. And on August he resigned from the President of the United States. So that was the first millionth. It took five years for the next millionth, second millionth copy to roll off, 1979. Uh, it took three years for the third millionth copy to roll off. And those of you who are in Montreal remember Bob Pearson gave the original, Bill Wilson's original secretary from 1930. 738-39. She was there. She was typing the manuscript. Gave the five millionth copy to Ruth Houck in the Olympic Stadium in Montreal at the convention. So as of today, 2,500 copies of the big book roll off the press every working day, five days a week. That's about a million copies every 18 months. Translated into 11 languages, distributed to 114 countries around the world. That's the present status of the big book. <clears throat> now, as I said, this uh, 
This book doesn't talk about stopping drinking and going to meetings. Spiritual growth. There's very little in here about drinking other than Bill's story. But it is indeed a whole book. And these sentences I'm going to quote here and there, what I call signal sentences, are concerned mostly with spiritual growth. Over here on page page one is a good place to start. Here's this quote that Bill Wilson had from the, uh, his visit to the Winchester Cathedral on his way to World War I. And he scores this one, two, three, four, it's a five, doggerel he calls it. And it was printed in the book and it was accepted for years. Shortly after Bill died, Lois took a trip back to England and stopped by the, wash, the, uh, the cathedral there. Winchester Cathedral, and Lois has got a real sharp mind. If you remember her history, when Bill was running around the country with his motorcycle and sidecar, evaluating businesses and reporting back to Wall Street where to buy stock and what not to buy, she was taking all the notes and doing all the writing reports. Lois was and is a real sharp lady. And again, those of you who are in Montreal heard her get out of her wheelchair and go up there and give us five minutes. A sharp gal. Anyway, at 94, she's still going strong. At any rate, shortly after Bill died, she went to the Washington Cathedral, to the uh, Winchester Cathedral, and she saw the star and said, My God, the quote in the big book is incorrect. There it is, Bill. It came back and it was written in the uh, box 459 and corrected. It was never put in the big book. And the big book still has Bill's original version. But here is the correct version that Lois copied and sent into box 459. It's two lines longer than Bill's quote. Here lies in peace a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death by drinking cold, small beer. Soldiers be wise from his untimely fall, and when you're hot, drink strong or none at all. An honest soldier ne'er is forgot, whether he die by musket or by pot. That's the full quote from Winchester Cathedral according to Lois. You notice that last sentence, whether you die by musket or by pot. Some of our younger members <laughs> have twisted this around to satisfy their own needs. All the book talks about is booze. No, no, no. It talks about pot, too. There it is. <laughs> one in every crowd, one in every Over on page 24, in italics, the fact, the fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power, the choice to drink, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our own consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against that first drink. And over on the next, next page again, it brings out this fact, the great fact. The great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep, 
and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has meant to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. That last sentence, those of you who are aficionados of the promises will know that's where he got the, the last of the promises, that God could do it for us what we could not do for ourselves. Next, over on page 30, here is the, uh, the opening to chapter 3. If you've been on the West Coast, Many of the groups there, in addition to reading chapter 5, they read chapter 3. And this is certainly a pertinent paragraph. The opening paragraph of chapter 3. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. And the last... The same chapter, chapter 3. Once more, once more, the alcoholic at certain times effective mental defense against the first drink. Except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. Next we have the agnostics chapter. We agnostics chapter 4. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but uh, I was a little cynical in my... Uh, and I tried to analyze. I didn't go along with it. Don't analyze, utilize. I didn't know you got to analyze too. And I was sort of picking the program apart here and there, quietly, not to anybody else, to myself. <clears throat> I thought, we agnostics. I got a little resentment, really, because there's a whole chapter devoted to agnostics. I said, well, why in the hell didn't Bill write a chapter to the believers? <laughs> he left us out. Whole chapter to the What about us? We believe. Or we just, just throw us around, just don't treat us all, don't give us any guidance. But I have found, ladies and gentlemen, in my big book study group, there's more wisdom there certainly has much wisdom in this chapter to the agnostics for me, who's a believer, than there is in any other chapter in the book. It is filled with wisdom. We spend sometimes a month on this one chapter in our big book study group. And here Bill points it out, and he doesn't sugarcoat the pill. Page 45 says, Lack of power, lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. 
But where and how were we to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself which will solve your That means we have written a book which we believe to be spiritual as well as moral. And it means, of course, that we are going to talk about God, period. Any newcomers in here, be prepared for it. We're going to talk about God, because God is our understanding, as we understand him. You may call it your sponsor, your higher power, Yahweh, Buddha, Mohammed, doesn't care what you call it. But we're going to talk about God. Page 53, here's another signal sentence for me. When we became alcoholics, crushed by a self-imposed crisis we could not postpone or evade, we had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What was our choice to be? Then how it works. Chapter 5, the great chapter 5. How it works. We hear that at A meetings in many parts of the country, right along with the preamble. Again, the original draft was a little different from the final draft. And I have a copy of the original draft here. I won't read it all, but the whole idea, basic idea was the original draft talking about Remember, you are dealing with alcohol. Half a measure will avail you nothing. You stand at the pony point. The whole thing was based on you, 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 you. And Bill changed that to we, 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 because it is a we program. That was the basic change in the original draft and the final printed version of the chapter five. There was another significant step seven originally read humbly on our knees ask him to remove our shortcomings, holding nothing back. And some of the uh, <clears throat> anti-religious characters in New York made him pull out that on our knees. He didn't want to get these drunks down on their knees. They were down there, but for other reasons, not to pray. <laughs> and there's a sentence over here that some of us wish they'd left in. He deleted it completely. This is after the three pertinent ideas that God could and would if he were sought. And there's a sentence here that was, this was in the original version. If you are not convinced on these vital issues, you ought to reread the book to this point or else throw it away. (laughs) Many of us wish he'd left that in, but he didn't. That's been deleted. Many of us are perfectionists. <clears throat> we come to this program and say, well, I can't work it perfect, so to hell with it. If I can't do it right, I'm not going to do it. Bill takes care of chapter 5, where he says, many of us explain what an order. I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. This is for the perfectionists. 
No one, no one among us has ever been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. So for the perfectionist, don't expect to be perfect. Spiritual progress is what we're after. And again, over in the uh, 12 and 12, Bill explains this a little further in the discussion of step six where he says, step one is the only step I'll ever be able to cut 100% all the time. Step one is the only one. The others are goals towards which I strive, reaching out a day at a time, trying to do a little better, knowing I'll never be able to practice the other 11 steps perfectly. Might be perfect today, but not this afternoon or tomorrow. So step one is the only step I'll ever be able to cut 100%. Bill suggests we use the other 11 steps as yardsticks to measure our growth. And on 63 is that wonderful third step prayer that many of us use in the morning. I was told when I came in here, I said, I don't know how to meditate. I don't know how to pray. I said, okay, get the book out. And it was suggested that I read the third step prayer on page 63, the seventh step prayer on 76, and page 86, halfway down the page, the paragraph that starts, on the morning we do so and so. And it was suggested to me if I read those three portions of the, of the big book every morning, that would satisfy the requirement for prayer and meditation to begin with. And I've been doing that for a long time. I still do that along with other morning prayers, but it works. The third step prayer for those of you who are not acquainted with it. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. That's a beautiful prayer. 64, Bill goes about resentment. 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 And he says, resentment is one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual disease. For we have been not only mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. Spiritually sick. <clears throat> now, some alcoholics are sicker than others. I'm one of them. I read among my morning readings the Al-Anon book, Odat. And I forgot what the date is, but they got a quote down at the bottom of the page from Frederick Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche. And he says, No power on earth consumes a man more completely than the passion of resentment. Friedrich knew what he was talking about a long time ago. No power on earth consumes a man more completely than the passion of resentment. Then Bill explains how to do the step four. Many people say, how do you do step four? I don't need to write it down. God knows about it. Why should I bother writing it down? Bill says, no, you've got to write it down. He shows us how to write it down. These three 
three columns. I'm resentful at the cause and effects my. And if you look at that right-hand column, fear, fear, fear is the underlying cause. Every one of them affects me through fear. There are other reasons, sex relations, self-esteem, security, so forth. But in each of them, in parenthesis, fear. Fear is the basic problem in most of our lives. Fear was the controlling emotion in my life. And most alcoholics. <clears throat> this doesn't uh, tell you when to do the fourth step. I like my friend Sandy's guidance on when you're supposed to take the fourth step. <clears throat> Sandy says, the day you take the third step, the day you really turn your will and your life over to the care of God, it's all yours. So that's the day you take a paper and pencil and start writing the fourth step. That's the time. Because when I turn my will and my life over to God, it's God who wills me to work this program. And he's not going to write the fourth step. I've got to write it. So that's the day I should work, start the fourth step, writing it down the day, the minute I turn my will and my life over to the care of God. <clears throat> There's controversy, not controversy, discussion about when you should take it. Here's well, can't take the fourth step. I'm too new because if I go through all those things, it's hard to get me drunk. Get me drunk. I can't write those things. <clears throat> Joe and Marty remember, gentlemen, God bless his soul. We had in in, uh, in the Washington area, Walter Davidson. God bless him. Walter died of cancer after years of sobriety. <clears throat> Walter's answer to that was, one of his pigeons came and said, Oh, me. Started running on the fourth step and he got me drunk. Walter said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You did what? And I started riding the fourth step and he got me drunk. Walter said, riding that fourth step didn't get you drunk. If you tell me what was on the label of that bottle you were drinking out of, I'll tell you what got you drunk. It wasn't riding that fourth step, it's that booze. That's what gets us drunk. Over on page 75 is a little item I missed for years. It's the checklist to see if I have accomplished the fifth step properly. And here it is. It's a seven-point checklist to see if I've worked the fifth step the way it's supposed to be worked. <clears throat> Bill says, We pocket our pride and go to it, illuminating every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. Once we have taken this step, withholding nothing, here are the things, seven things that happened to me. We are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. The feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. We feel we're on the broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. And my sponsor suggested to me if those things hadn't happened, I hadn't taken the fifth step properly. John 76 is the seventh step prayer I mentioned. Just a short four lines. My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character that stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength 
as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. Bill says, we have then completed step seven. Then we get over here on the, these wonderful promises. I won't take the time to read them all. You all know them at the bottom of, <clears throat> bottom of page 83 and 84. I love a sentence over here on the introduction to it, though, on page 82. He says, We feel a man is unthinking when he says that sobriety is enough. We feel a man is unthinking when he says that sobriety is enough. And if you've been around a few years, you hear some of these people saying, All I'm going to do is stop drinking. That's all I do. That's all they promise you is sobriety. I'm going to stop drinking. Take care of the physical aspects of the disease. And everything else will fall into place. For most of us, it doesn't work that way. Physical sobriety is not enough for most of us. It certainly wasn't enough for me. So it's mental and spiritual sobriety. And that's what comes with the trying to live the spiritual life. And on page 83 again, the middle of the page, before he gets into the promises, Bill points this out, here again in italics. The spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. The spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. Same thing my sponsor told me about gratitude. He says, very simple around these meetings, say, my name is so-and-so, and I'm a grateful alcoholic. Words are cheap. He suggested I had to live an attitude of gratitude. And that's another way of saying living a spiritual life. Not a theory. We have to live it. And those wonderful promises, I won't go into those. Bottom of page 83 and 84. <clears throat> Again, I was in a way for a while, sitting there thinking one night, analyzing. <clears throat> and I'd heard about, I don't know, I'd... Something to do with the Air Force in West Point. They were about their code of honor. There's something in the paper published about somebody had been kicked out of something. They'd broken the code of honor. And I was thinking, well, most organizations have a code or a creed. I wonder why aid doesn't have one. And in my discussion with Sponsor, I just mentioned that idle chit-chat. He said, look at the book. Look at the book. <laughs> Page 84. Here it is. Love and tolerance of others is our code. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Love and tolerance of others is our code. So, A has a code, too. Speak of love and tolerance. Those of you here at Montreal heard Liz our Sunday morning. God bless her. Liz Jameson from uh, New Zealand, talking about tolerance and love. So it's very simple to love the lovable. And A, we have to learn to love the unlovable. And it's very simple, no big deal, to be tolerant of the tolerant. And A, you have to be tolerant of the intolerant. That's what this program is all about. Loving the unlovable, being tolerant of the intolerant. And here's that sentence I mentioned earlier on page 85. It is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. Got it made. You've seen this happen. People, 90 meetings in 90 days, everything's going great, they get the job back, their wife takes them back, and everything's great, and they slow down their meetings. And pretty soon, you don't see them anymore. They rest on their laurels. And Clancy talks about the one of his babies, they call him out there. 
<clears throat> real active for six months, and didn't see him. Saw him on the street. What happened? I see him meeting him. Oh, uh, back in the church. Become a deacon in the church. I'm getting right with God. Got a direct line to God. I don't need those meetings anymore. Deacon in the church, very active, and uh, God and I, are, he's my, my uh, sponsor, and, and things are great. Francis said, I don't know what happened, but six months later, <clears throat> I see him on the street, and heavenly God handed him a beer because he was drunk. <laughs> so it is easy to let up on our spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. We are headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. We are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. Now, in this program we hear <coughs> will, self-will, run riot. We hear about that. And willpower is sort of degraded, sort of spoken of in not too endearing terms. <coughs> and uh, the old thing about Willpower won't get you sober. If you think willpower will solve the problem, try willpower the next time you have diarrhea. And you know it just doesn't work. So willpower sort of gets the back of our hand of A in most discussions, but not Bill. He talks about willpower here. He says, Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of will. So willpower is an important part of my AA life. The proper use of will. What this alcoholic and most alcoholics were guilty of, the improper use of will. That was our problem. Willpower is a great thing if used properly. And Bill spells it out here. This is the proper use of will. Praying to God, thy will, not mine, be done. And here's those pages in my morning meditation. On awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. And for the next page and a half, Bill talks about what we should do in terms of getting rid of self-seeking motives, facing indecisions, and all the things to do. A very wonderful page and a half there on what to do in our morning meditation. And he closes that chapter out with this wonderful statement. We hear it many times. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. This is a program of action, they told me, and I'm the action officer. Willingness without action is fantasy. Now, we hear a lot about willingness. <clears throat> and many people say, I have to just be willing. This is true to get into the program. That's all I have to do. Be willing. Be willing. And chapter 5, which we've read many times, Points out there, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, so there's the willingness that comes first. But immediately there's action along with that willingness because it says, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. And there's the action that immediately goes along with the willingness. And again, in uh, step eight, made a list of all those we'd harm and became willing to make amends. There it is again. Willingness comes first, primary, but immediately in step nine made direct amends to those we'd harm, except when to do so would injure them or others. So there it works when other activities fail. And then it goes into the discussion of 
the twelfth step. <coughs> Carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. Page 98 sentence is another signal sentence for me. Burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone. Burn the idea. And it talks about talking to newcomers. Burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone. The only condition, the only condition is that he trust in God and clean house. That's the only condition for success in this program, according to Bill. Trust in God and clean house. Now, there's someone I've forgotten who's... Uh, six words. He brought this down instead of uh, the words used there, the same idea, but said A summed up in six words. Love God clean house and help others that sums it up too <clears throat> and our friend one of the five non-alcoholics that Bill Wilson gave credit to Bill said there were five non-alcoholics again in AA we talk a lot about it takes one alcoholic to help another the implication is that only one alcoholic can help another well this is for the birds as most of you know but you still hear the myth one of those A myths is have to have one alcoholic. He can't listen to a psychiatrist or social worker or someone else in the church. Bill said there were five people, non-alcoholics, that helped him. He wouldn't got the program off the ground if it hadn't been for these five people. First was Dr. William Silkworth, his physician at Towns Hospital in New York. Second was Sister Ignatia, the non-alcoholic nurse. At the St. Thomas Hospital, there was Dr. Bob's assistant. Third was Father Ed Dowling, the Jesuit priest who had convinced Bill to become a Catholic. And Bill had taken whatever it is. I'm not a Catholic. I don't know what he was ready to sign or what he was supposed to do to convert to Catholicism. When his friends in New York said, look, Bill, if you convert to Catholicism, every member of A will think he has to convert to Catholicism to stay sober. Because people look to you as God. So that's the only reason, according to Bill, that he did not convert to Catholicism. Because it set an example that would be misinterpreted in every AA of those days, would think he had to convert to Catholicism and follow in Bill's footsteps. So that's the only reason Bill did not convert to Catholicism, according to him. But he practiced the principles wherever they are all his life. So he was a number three man. Number four was the gentleman that uh, I'm going to quote. Uh, Reverend Sam Shoemaker, Reverend Canon Sam Shoemaker, the Episcopal minister at the Calvary Episcopal Church at 21st Street, Gramercy Park in New York City. If you're ever in the city on a Friday or a Sunday, there are TGIF groups on Friday, and they will take you to the upstairs. Used to be Sam's study where Sam Shoemaker, Abby Thatcher, and Bill Wilson met every Thursday when it was after the Oxford group meeting downstairs and discussed the spirituality of this program. They still keep that study there and you'll be welcome to look at it. Sam summed it up in seven words. 
Sam wrote a a uh, item uh, a composition for the grapevine it was printed in January 1964. He died in October 63. And this is a story printed for the grapevine, and it's titled "The Twelve Steps as I Understand Them." And in this article for the grapevine, and they reprint it every so often. You can get a copy if you're interested. January 64 edition. Sam said this, he had analyzed each step and showed that these steps are a spiritual way of life applicable to anyone and everyone that has a problem. It has nothing to do with booze, a spiritual way of life, and that's in these 12 steps. And he summed the whole steps of the whole program up in seven words. Out of self, into God, into others. Out of self, into God, into others. And of course, Dr. Bob, on his last talk, summed it up in two words. Love and service. So there you have it. Two words, six words, seven words, whatever you want. <clears throat> now, I don't know about you, but I had a lot of fun drinking for many years. Booze was kind to me. Booze made good things better and better things best. And I got sober in San Francisco in 1958, and I was miserable, miserable. And again, this has proved to me that you can't have fun without drinking. I'd proved it. I'd gotten sober, sober eight months. But I was the most miserable person in the world. The first miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous for me, when I came in the program in New York City, November 17, 1964, was here a bunch of happy people, happy people having fun. Living it up, laughing, smiling. I think I walked to a cocktail party. Well, they were living and happy and gay. This was gay when there was a different terminology of the expression. <laughs> anyway, it was a great bunch, and that was the first miracle for me, that they were happy people and they weren't drinking booze. The first miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's been a happy, happy, wonderful life, because I stick with the winners and enjoy this program. And here I finally found, years later... Here on page 133, Bill says, We are sure that God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. We cannot subscribe to belief that this life is a veil of tears, though it was once just that for many of us. But it is clear that we made our own misery. We made our own misery. And I don't know about you, but I was taught back in Sunday school or somewhere. I thought that's what they said. That I had to put up with this life in order to have go to heaven. So no matter how bad it got down here, it's going to be worth it because I was going to heaven and live happily ever after. So I looked upon this life as a veil of tears, and especially when I got sober in San Francisco and a, a miserable, horrible life. And it wasn't worth it for me. I went back to drinking, as many of you know. At any rate, when I came to this program, God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. That made sense to me. And the misery, I made the misery. God didn't do it. Then on page 132, I found this sentence. I didn't find it. My A group, big book study group found it. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. And that's what these weekends are for me. These AA weekends, IDA, whatever they are. A bunch of people insisting on enjoying life. And that, for me, is the AA way of life. Then over on 
152, we have, we all know about the 12 promises, the 14 promises, 11 promises, whatever you call them. But here's some over here that are hidden. You don't hear much about them. Page 152. Bill's talking about, he's discussing this program with a newcomer. And he's having a little problem. And he says here, tells about the newcomer, what he should do. We have shown how we got out from under, under alcoholism. And you say that the newcomer says, yes, I'm willing. I'm willing to go along with your program. Don't drink. Go to meetings. Okay, I'm willing. But am I to be consigned to a life where I shall be stupid, boring, and glum like some righteous people I see? And that's what I was in 1958 in San Francisco and I stopped drinking. A stupid, dull, boring, glum life. And boy, did I identify with that when I saw that. And that was my question, but no one gave me the answer then. I didn't ask anybody. I was just stupid, boring, and dumb. <laughs> anyway, here it is. Here's the answer. So this is the newcomer asking Bill, Am I to be consigned to a life where I shall be stupid, boring, and glum like righteous people I see? I know I must get along without liquor, but how can I? Have you a sufficient substitute? Bill says, Yes. Yes. There is a substitute, and it is vastly more than that. It is a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous. And here are the additional promises. There you will find release from care, release from boredom, release from worry. Your imagination will be fired. Life will mean something at last. The most satisfactory years of your existence lie ahead. Thus we find the fellowship, and so will you. What beautiful words. I wish someone had told me that in 1958. Then the close of the 164 pages, the vision for you, and this again is read in a lot of groups, a lot of conventions as the closing paragraph in each meeting. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him, capital H, is right. And great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. And that's the last sentence in the first 164 pages. In a few minutes I have left, I want to just touch on a few things back in the stories. My big book study group, we go through the first 164 pages a couple times. Then we go through the stories because there's a lot of wisdom back in these stories. A lot of wisdom in these stories. And as you know, the third edition 
a lot of 13 news stories in there. The That's the only change in the big book, as most of you know. The first edition in 1939, mostly they were low-bottom drunks that lost everything. Most of them were... Marty Mann, I think, was the only female story. But the rest of them really, down at the bottom, they'd lost everything. Well, as you know, over the years, we've got some people coming in with still two Cadillacs in the garage. And uh, <clears throat> we've had to sort of raise the level. And the present stories in the back covers, minority groups, old, rich, different ages, tries to cover the whole spectrum of the membership of AA. There's just a couple. Page 311. A warning about AA. AA is not a plan for recovery that can be finished and done with. It is a way of life. And the challenge contained in its principles is great enough to keep any human being striving for as long as he lives. We do not, cannot outgrow this plan. As arrested alcoholics, we must have a program for a living that allows for limitless expansion. And that's why I and many of my colleagues keep going to meetings, meetings, meetings. I learn something at every AA meeting I go to. And I go to a lot of meetings in Washington. We have 157 meetings every day, seven days a week, starting at 7 in the morning around the clock. I learn something at every AA meeting I go to, either a new learning, an old learning reinforced, or what I call a negative learning. I learn what not to do if I want to stay sober a day at a time. So for me, this is indeed... <clears throat> a way of life and the challenge contained in its principles is great enough to keep this human being for striving as long as I live. Then our friend uh, Paul Oliger, I don't think Paul is with us. Paul's story is in here and Paul has a beautiful paragraph on acceptance. In the West Coast, I've been to some closed discussion meetings in Palm Desert and Palm Springs. And they have, okay, have any problems? And some will say, well, I have a resentment and so forth. Get on your knees and pray. Next. Next guy, well, I'm having a problem. Page 449 in the big book. Next. So anybody that has a problem with acceptance, they just refer them to page 449 and go on to the next person. They don't waste time. Here is the answer on page 449, thanks to Dr. Paul Oliger. God bless him. Acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. All my problems in italics. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, some place, something or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me. And I can find no security until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, 
I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and in my attitudes. Well, that opens me to give you an hour lecture on attitude of gratitude, but I will deny you that privilege. Of it. <laughs> Perfect opening for it, though. But Paul said it all there. Then over on... This used to be the last story in the big book. It's the second to the last now. Freedom from Bondage. Written by a lady. And she really said a lot. She first of all told her how to get rid of resentment. She's talking about her mother. She had a resentment against her for 20 years. She said she thrived on this resentment. She sort of fondled it and kept it there. Give her something to play with you know, all the time. But finally, in desperation, she realized unless she got rid of that resentment, she's going to get drunk. Her sponsor told her she had to get rid of it. How do you get rid of it? And he told her how. Finally, he said, in effect, if you have a resentment you want to be free of, if you will pray for the person or the thing that you resent, you will be free. If you will ask in prayer for everything you want for yourself to be given to them, you will be free. Ask for their health, their prosperity, their happiness, and you will be free. Even when you don't really want it for them, and your prayers are only words, and you don't mean it, go ahead and do it anyway. Do it every day for two weeks, and you will find you have come to mean it and to want it for them. And you will realize that where you used to feel bitterness and resentment and hatred, you now feel compassion, understanding, and love. I had a resentment my first year in the program after I'd gotten back to Washington. I went to my sponsor and he referred me to this book. He referred me again. It used to be page 561, the old edition. Look at page 561. I read it. I'd be a hypocrite praying for these. I hate the SOB. Get on your knees and pray anyway, even though you don't mean it. It didn't make any sense to me. Now, the book here says pray for two weeks. Some of us are sicker than others. I prayed for two weeks and it didn't work. I hated the SOB more. I said, keep on your knees. And I prayed, as I remember, about two months. But I did what I was told. Every night on my knees praying for the SOB. In about six weeks or two months, sure enough, that hatred, envy, bitterness, and resentment changed to compassion and understanding and love. And that gentleman, I are one of my closest friends in Washington today. So it works, ladies and gentlemen, even though you don't mean it, even though you're a hypocrite, get on your knees and pray and it works. Then she says over here, the only real freedom a human can ever know is doing what you ought to do because you want to do it. The only real freedom that I could ever know was doing what I ought to do because I wanted to do it. I went to meetings at first because I was told to go. I knew I ought to go to meetings, and I went because I ought to go to meetings. New York City, three meetings a day. But I was going because I ought to go. My sponsor told me to go. But one day, I don't know when, I went to a meeting because I wanted to go. Not because I, because I wanted to go. And that, that a taste of that real freedom. 
doing what I ought to do because I wanted to do it. And ladies and gentlemen, that is real freedom. And this lady, God bless her, says, A gives me everything I need. Everything I need, I get. And when I get what I need, I invariably find it was just what I wanted all the time. And that hit me between the eyes because I remember my days in the Air Force. I was an Air Force career officer. I knew what I wanted. I wanted promotion, prestige, more money, power, it's those things. And I'd be happy. Sure, I, that's what I wanted was happiness. But give me promotion, money, power, and prestige, and I'd be happy. Just give me those things. There's no problem. I knew what my problem was. And that would solve all those problems. I came into AA. A didn't give me any promotion. Didn't give me any power. Didn't give me any money. It gave me peace of mind. And that's exactly what I wanted all the time. In closing, let's give respect and honor to Herbert Spencer. Way back here in the back, this signals statement from Herbert Spencer. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. And that says it all, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all for listening. God bless you. you for that very inspiring talk. I really needed to hear that stuff. That's really good. For all, all those who will, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. I really do appreciate it.